This is the Prophetic Politics Podcast. I'm Nick Rodriguez. I'm Thabiti Anyabwile. So today, Thabiti, we're going to talk about, air quote, identity politics. <laughs> if you've tuned into political discourse over the last few years, you've probably heard that term. Uh, you may even have heard it inside Christian circles as well. It is related to the question of race that we took on in a previous episode, but it is a little bit different. So, Nick, uh, tell us, what exactly is identity politics? So, this is one of those things where defining the terms a little slippery, but I'm going to try. Um, at the heart of the question of identity politics is a question that's a core part of the American story. Um, each person is a unique individual with rights, responsibilities, freedoms, etc., and each person, at the same time, belongs to multiple groups that confer a sense of identity on them. So your ethnicity is one of those groups, your nationality is another, and of course your religion is a part of your identity. And if you're a Christian, uh, we understand that the identity of being a Christian to supersede other identities um, but we'll talk more about this later. It doesn't mean those other identities go away. I don't think there's anything in the Bible that suggests that. Um, so uh, this brings us back to the question. When we think about politics and public policy, so the question is this. Should we treat people as individuals, as members of those groups and group identities, or both? Uh, so a few examples of where this shows up in our public life. The most famous kind of current one is affirmative action, whether that's in universities or in the workplace. Um, affirmative action, which is essentially... Um, let's just call it taking into account a person's membership in a group that has been historically disadvantaged in making education, admission, or employment decisions, right? So that's the sort of nutshell what affirmative action is. And, and more, uh, a conservative critic might say, no, it's about quotas and unfairly advantaging members of certain groups, right, is what they would say. But Yeah, but there I would I would tweak the wording a little bit. It's not, it's mm. not just um, groups who have been historically, quote, disadvantaged, but discriminated against. Yeah. In other words, their that's group right. their group identity was penalized unrighteously. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. So affirmative action, but just by that very definition, right, mm -hmm. requires some kind of recognition of a person's group identity in public policy. Um, some people are for this. Some people are against it. We'll talk about it in a second. Um, more fundamental questions that underlies a lot of social policy are beneath this question. Uh, should public policy try to help groups? that have historically been marginalized or oppressed. Um, that is really where the term originated. Uh, the term affirmative action originated among groups active in the civil rights era who felt that identity was an underemphasized part of politics. So there was a moment in our history when we actually said, wait a minute, we're not taking identity enough into account mm -hmm. in the way public policy views people um, in this country. Um, Here's an, so a, a little bit more of a kind of a, a tangential example, but I think an important one in our current moment. When you see people in certain groups voting in high numbers for one candidate or for one party, that often leads to accusations of identity politics. So when African-Americans vote in you know, 80 to 90 percent for a Democratic candidate, they'll say, oh, there's identity politics there. And likewise, when... White evangelicals vote um, en masse for Republicans. We say, oh, there's, you know, well, well, when you talk about that, it's just you're playing identity politics to even point that out. Um, the implication is that the voter is voting for a person or a candidate because of an identity shared in some way with that candidate, uh, regardless, and this is important, regardless of the consequences for people in other 
identity groups. Um, and the idea, the argument against identity politics is that that can be harmful. If you just vote for sort of your identity, um, then that can be a challenge. Um, one thing I'm going to note here, America as a country is unique, I think, in the balance it strikes between individualism and group identity. Um, in most other multi-ethnic societies, there's either chaos or a sort of more visible accommodation of various identity groups. Um, so the chaos examples, I actually won't name too many of them other than to say if you hear about what is called a sectarian civil war in any country in the mm -hmm. world, that is, a that is almost always a clash of identity groups where politics was not sufficient to kind of contain the conflict between groups and it spilled over into violence. For countries that sort of quote-unquote manage the situation, um, I'll give a couple examples. Um, in Nigeria, Nigeria is a country which has kind of two big blocks, a Christian-identified block and a Muslim-identified block. Until recently, the accommodation those groups reached was that by tradition, the president would alternate from coming between those two groups. Mm. Um, that tradition was broken recently, and Nigeria is kind of entering a new period now, but that was the accommodation. It was sort of just understood mm. that that was how it would work. Um, where my mother comes from in Malaysia and also in neighboring Singapore, there are three big identity groups, um, Chinese, Malay, and Indian. And in all those cases, there are, there are separate education. Not, I, I don't want to take this point too far, except to say that each of those communities has accommodations for it as a community, whether that's the language you learn in school, um, in some cases, kind of aspects of local court systems and other things like that. Um, and uh, so, but, but, they just sort of recognize this is a kind of polyglot society with three big ethnic groups, and we kind of need a way of letting them all have their own identity. Um, another example would be Italian, German, and French speakers in Switzerland. Mm. Um, those are three different language groups in one country. And then English and French Canadians, um, also two language groups in one country. Um, so, so other countries deal with it, but you could, that's almost unthinkable in America that you'd have like a, you know, oh, there is, there are like five identity groups and they each have sort of different public policies applied to them. Mm -hmm. And yet the, uh, the opposite ethos, which is everyone is just their own unique individual. Let's just sort of strip the context of identity away from them and kind of pretend that that's how we should think about people leaves us unsatisfied, leaves us unsatisfied as well. So can I ask you a question on that in yeah, terms yeah. of the American context? Would, would certain policies for Native American peoples, for example, be the, mm -hmm. the closest thing to the kind of accommodation for identity that yes. uh, we would have? That's a country? really, really good point. And here's the thing. The sort of legal construct underlying that, flimsy as it is, mm -hmm. although, I, again, my Native American friends who are listening can correct me on this, mm -hmm. Um, but the construct underlying that is that those are separate sovereign That's right. nations. States. That's right. Nations. Right. And, uh, same is true. I do work on these issues in Canada, right? Mm -hmm. Like they're, they're literally called first nations as mm -hmm. in the nations who were here first. That's right. That's right? right. And, um, and, and I think in all those cases, so, so it takes that kind of legal framework of you are a separate nation mm -hmm. technically mm -hmm. with treaties with the United States or with Canada in order for that to, but you're right. It's the closest thing to that kind of accommodation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So is there a place in America, fundamentally, for identity politics? Well, that's the question, right? Mm -hmm. I think um, we, I think, I think, I think that's the question that seems to be more bubbling to the forefront today. And we'll talk about sort of ways that um, ways that kind of plays out in our current politics. What I wanted to do before we did that, though, was root this in scripture. So um, 
Thabiti, um, as you think about kind of where scripture helps us, where does scripture help us uh, think about how we as Christians should think about identity and then identity in politics? Well, I, I think one of the things that we should all recognize is that the notion of identity is multi-layered. Mm-hmm. Yes. You started out by framing it in terms of individual versus group identity. Uh, that's absolutely right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we all sort of, as as persons, uh, are sort of constellations of of identities. So even when I say I'm an individual, we break that down in various ways. Yeah. I'm, I'm a father, I'm a husband, uh, I'm a southerner, uh, and so on. And so the first thing to, to recognize is that the Bible actually treats us in that sort of multi-layered way as well. Right. Most fundamentally, uh, we are human beings mm-hmm. uh, made in the image and likeness of God, right? And so we're image bearers. And I don't think we think about that enough and we'll come to this a little bit later when we talk about how this plays out from a Christian perspective in our public policy. Mm. But most fundamentally, we're image bearers, uh, Genesis 1, 26, 27. But now when we come down into the sort of um, narrative of Scripture, the primordial history of Scripture, and you come down to a place like uh, Genesis chapter 10 mm. and the Table of Nations, that's where we see actually the rise, uh, interestingly, as part of God's curse on, mm. on the pride of humanity. That's why you see the rise of these different languages and clans, what we would call ethnic groups, right? Um, so the idea of the ethne, uh, the nations, the people groups of the world is actually God's idea. Um, and, and the sort of stratification of human society mm. in those ethnic groups, you know, sharing um, uh, family lineage, sharing culture and language, mm-hmm. and to some extent sharing geography, um, that, that's God's idea, right? Mm-hmm. And so we have that level of our identity as well. You were talking to it a moment ago, whether we're Chinese or, or Malaysian or African-American or Nigerian right. and so on. Well, the other layer to that that you see just spoken of repeatedly in the scripture is religious identity, yep. right? So whether you are an Israelite in the Old Covenant or whether you are part of the the sort of Gentile nations. And again, that could be broken up in terms of those who worship the Baals or, or those who practice some other uh, pagan religion. Uh, religious identity is a pretty powerful um, identity group that shows up in our politics uh, in the mm-hmm. country as well, just as it shows up in the Bible as well. And so we get those, those kinds of groups as well. Then when you come to the New Testament, of course, we have this really extraordinary thing. You get the reversal of the Tower of Babel uh, at Pentecost, Mm -hmm. and God now sort of makes a people who were no people into a new people uh, called Christians, come to be called Christians at one point. So you might might think of Christians as a spiritual ethnicity, um, Mm -hmm. as a a spiritual identity group um, that's also in play, uh, and as you said earlier, transcending the other identity markers but not obliterating them, right? Mm-hmm. And so we're this sort of confluence of, of identities. And uh, in our politics, one or more kind of oftentimes pushes forward uh, in ways that are conscious and sometimes um, not uh, and, and shape how we think about, at least from what so- social location we think about any particular set of political issues. That's a really, really helpful, um, I think, set of foundations. So uh, let me just kind of kick this off by asking, like, if you think about, there's one there's one sort of argument about identity politics that just says, well, let's just put it in its bluntest form, right? 
why don't we just treat everybody as individuals? And they, we might cite the Bible and we'd say, all right, well, we're all created in God's image. We're all sort of equal human beings. Um, why can't we just focus on that? Right? Like why, why, you know, so, and, you know, I think that's a, I think it's a, uh, it's a legitimate question to, for us to take on. Well, I, one is I think it oversimplifies the Bible. Yeah. Uh, and it, and it doesn't actually deal with a reality that God has created. He has mm-hmm. placed us in families and those mm-hmm. larger groups of families become what we call ethnicities. And that has meaning that has, that has, and that has meaning determined by those cultures. Yeah. Right. So, um, if you flatten the world without any responsiveness to kindred, tribe, language, etc., you actually you, you actually do violence to the world in terms of the way it's re- it really exists, mm-hmm. and you actually set up more conflicts than if you know something about those people group people groups, what's meaningful to them, how they view the world, and how to engage it. Um, you know that's harder work, but it makes for deeper peace than if we just say, oh. We're all just human beings, and and why don't we just sort of make that it? The other reason why I don't think you just make that the sole criteria uh, that sort of influences this is because actually in the world that we actually inhabit, Mm. there are um, historical patterns of interaction that need to be addressed anytime you're in kind of a a multi-ethnic society, right? So that, again, if we're just going to root this not in concepts but in history, if we're talking about the, the, the American experience, mm-hmm. well, we, we've got interactions between white settlers and the native peoples who were here. Mm-hmm. We've got interactions between the Africans who were enslaved and brought here. We've got interactions with later immigrant groups uh, from Asia or South America and so on. Um, almost none of, that, none of that interaction is happening premised upon just treating everybody as individuals. Mm-hmm. Even European immigrants, you know, sort of get dealt with by their, their ethnic identities initially. So mm-hmm. whether you're Polish or Italian or so on, that would have been the most defining characteristic about those groups when they first come onto American soil. And later that gives yep. way to a broader national identity. Um, so it, there's history there that often needs to be understood and often needs to be addressed if we're going to deal with the world that we actually inhabit. Ben, any thoughts from you? Yeah, so, so I'm new to this podcast, and I'm usually just producer Ben. <laughs> usually just checking the sound. Producer Ben is Super going to be producer. a regular <laughs> contributor to this podcast from now on, uh, against my will. But yes, <laughs> um, I think the one thing that strikes me is it seems that one of the most tragic effects of sin on the world is taking something like the fact that people come from all places, languages ethnicities and that's become something that we divide over where I think the picture I see in scriptures this is supposed to be a mosaic of people giving glory to God and worshiping him it's supposed to be something beautiful and we've turned it into something ugly uh, and I think that is really a tragedy and is something as you know ministers of reconciliation we should be trying to paint a picture of what it looks like to be um, from all ethnicities praising God glorifying him and being united um, despite these differences. So it strikes me that it really is tragic that we've allowed the sin in this world to corrupt something that's supposed to be a very beautiful testament to God's workmanship. No, I, I, I think that's on point, um, especially as gospel people, right? Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think there would be two things I would say in, in, in addition to what Ben has said there. One, one is... 
um, we have to be clear on the we. Yeah. Right? So we're not surprised that people who aren't Christians um, continue to make ugly something that should be beautiful. Right? Mm -hmm. We ought to be surprised if we Christians do that. Right, mm. or if we Christians approach those those ugly things as if we don't have the resources of the gospel to address them, right? Yeah. That that shame on us if, yeah. if that's the case. So part of what we have to do is be clear about the we. I don't expect every American, for example, mm. uh, to think in Christian terms um, about this issue of identity politics, and yeah. I'm not surprised when they don't. Um, and so I, we ought to be holding ourselves, we Christians, now to be holding ourselves to a higher standard. The other thing I would say about what Ben is saying, of course, is that um, I think from a gospel perspective, it's important that we recognize that when diversity first appears on the scene, uh, Genesis 10, Genesis 11, um, it's it's in the context of the fallen world. Mm -hmm. So that if you could imagine um, how people might have viewed themselves before the fall, I think it would have been all of the beauty that Ben is talking about. It, yeah. it would have been seeing the beauty of the diversity in the same way that we see the beauty of in different varieties of flowers, for example, uh, or different varieties of birds. Right. Uh, a peacock is one thing. A parrot is another. A cockatiel. Mm -hmm. and, and we can marvel at the immense creativity and creation that we see from God's hand. I think we might have had a similar kind of marveling without sin hmm. at each other at the diversity that God has created. But now when you're in Genesis 10 and 11 and all the way up to the gospel, right? All the way up to Ephesians 2, for example, mm. um, you see mankind dealing with each other and, and what is meant to be recognized as beauty. You see mankind dealing with each other in very sinful ways, getting expressed across those uh, kinds of dimensions. So when we come to the gospel and the application of the gospel, I think it's important for us to realize that fallenness and that context out of which we're coming and the kind of restorative and renewing work that has to go on in our minds, Romans 12, 1 and 2, as it relates to ethnicity, as it relates to how we see ethnicity, as it relates to how we appreciate its beauty, and as it relates to how we unlearn a number of things we had learned quite regularly before becoming Christians. Yeah. Well, and just to tick off a list I'm hearing from both of you about kind of where can identity politics go wrong? Right, and I'll just name a few things. Number one, it's sort of in privileging my identity a group over and against another's. Right, we've talked about tribalism in the past. This mm -hmm. is a form of that. Mm -hmm. Who is in my tribe? That can be Christians versus others. It can be people in my yep. my ethnic group versus others. It can be even my nationality. Right, like all celebration of identity has as its sort of evil twin on the flip side. What some what some um what some political scientists would call nationalism, essentially, saying uh, ours is our, our in-group is better than other groups and we should treat it as such. Um, there's, a, there's a nuance to that, Thabiti, which I would just want to pick up on from your writings and from what we've discussions we've had in the past, which is race as a created category is a way of constructing an identity and foisting it onto somebody else, and then, of course, discriminating on the basis of that identity. Um, that's another kind of challenge. And in both of those cases, you have these sort of actions um, against groups because they are in those groups and for groups because they're in those groups that can be um, a challenge. Now, so let me let me let me let me pose the sort of quote unquote colorblind question in a more pointed way if we think about those excesses. Why is the solution not to sort of 
stop worrying about identity, right? Like, like so there's a, I think there's a famous quote from, I want to say it's one of the conservative Supreme Court justices. It could be like Scalia or Thomas, but he says, the best way to not discriminate on race is to not discriminate based on race, right? <laughs> and so, and, and, and so what they mean by that is, let's just stop using these categories, so to speak, right? And so, yeah, so what do you guys think of that? Well, I, okay, so there's a sense in which that kind of statement is true. You know, tautologically speaking. That's exactly <laughs> That's right. It's tautology, a right? A equals A, right? <laughs> yeah. 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 Amen. <laughs> um, yeah. But there's a sense in which, and I think this is the greater sense in which it's entirely naive because mm-hmm. it, it misunderstands uh, two things. It misunderstands which comes first, race or racism. Yeah. Um, and, and it misunderstands the nature of racism as a sin. So I would argue that racism comes first. Mm-hmm. And the creation of race as a social construct and a pseudoscientific construct sure. is how racism justifies itself, mm-hmm. right? So in that sense, we, we do want to be pushing back against a very category of race for more, I would argue, more biblical mm-hmm. um, self-understandings. But now racism is the kind of thing, is the kind of sin that actually um, expresses itself along racial lines, Mm-hmm. Right. So it, it, sometimes I'm in these conversations and people say, hey, let's just get rid of race. And I, oh, by the way, I'm, a, I'm against racism. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, if you get rid of race and you're against racism, what, what then how then do you understand racism? Mm-hmm. Right. And, and so most people kind of go, well, I, they, they stutter a bit. Right? Yeah. And, and you realize that, no, racism, the nature of the sin is, is that it, it, it acts on physical appearance, assumptions about Mm-hmm. common culture, common heritage, so on and so forth. Um, and that's why that statement from a, a conservative or a liberal or anybody mm-hmm. doesn't really work because it, the, the expression of sin, the expression of bias is systematic along mm-hmm. color lines, right? right? And so you at least have to give it attention uh, enough to sort of say, is that happening? Is there a policy expression? Is there a political expression? Is there a power expression that's happening systematically along the lines of color mm-hmm. in such a way it would lead us to conclude that that's unjust, that that's yeah. not right. Um, and, and we ought to, in that case, then be thinking about racism, yeah. which brings into mind some notion of race, in order to then redress it, in order to then fix it uh, in some way that also is systematic uh, and pushes in, the, in a more just direction. Yeah, which requires recognizing that those groups exist. That's exactly right. And that they kind of are, you know, that it's visible in the data, for example. In mm-hmm. the field I work in in education, knowing that there are so-called achievement gaps mm-hmm. between people, between students in different of these groups, some of which overlap with one another, uh, is the only way you can even decide that you want to address those sorts of um, inequities at all. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, that, and that's... And that's really critical. I, I read recently a, a piece by John McWhorter, uh, who was pushing uh, against the notion of um, sort of protest uh, and racial justice protest as a new kind of religion with his own priests and his own system of atonement. It's a really, as, oh, McWhorter, as McWhorter can be, it's a really uh, provocative argument. Mm-hmm. But it falls down for me because, for example, McWhorter uses this illustration of precisely what you just mentioned, the achievement mm-hmm. gap. And he talks about a, a young African American kid in an underperforming school, um, behind, um, and uh, talks about some other research where actually there is some data that young African American boys, in particular, uh, do show more aggressive behavior and therefore are 
uh, liable to more school suspensions, so on and so forth. Now, McWhorter, in the article at least, wants to talk about that in almost a race-neutral kind of way. Yeah. And so my question is, but how did, how did the African-American boy get so disproportionately, uh, find himself so disproportionately represented in poor neighborhoods mm-hmm. and poor schools? Um, and, and my answer to that is we got a long racial history. Yep. of segregation and, and of policies that impoverish and policies that have historically uh, limited access to opportunity uh, in those communities. And so if, if you try to enter into that and say, hey, let's just talk about this in a race-neutral way, yeah, right? And let's just say everybody's now at the same starting point. Well, that's a wonderful fantasy, mm-hmm. but it's not at all yeah. real life. Right. Yeah. And so if we want real life solutions to these things, which are the kind of solutions that the gospel gives us, I think actually think we have to enter into things as they really are. Yeah. Yeah. That, my, my first takeaway or first thought when you ask that question um, is it, it kind of ignores history and the, the systemic historical effects of of past sins, past injustices. So the question now is, how do we want to remedy this through public policy and, and otherwise? Do we want to remedy this? And it's kind of an interesting question. And what the best way is to remedy this is, is an issue we could debate in a million different ways. The McWhorter piece, which I actually read as well and enjoyed quite a bit, um, the, I didn't key in on that. I keyed in more on his rebuke of white liberalism that sees kind of reading Ta-Nehisi Coates as their atonement mm-hmm. for past sins and sharing mm-hmm. it on social media, but then doing nothing Performative else. Performative wokeness. That's right. right. That's right. Yeah. And I will say, I think uh, being in that world to a degree – that that's not enough. I mean, there's a part of me that just wants to yell, put your money where your mouth is. Like, let's actually be on the ground and, and love the impoverished and the oppressed well. Um, but that's a, that's a more thorny question, more difficult to actually, it's much easier to share something on social media than it is to get involved in oppressed communities. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I want to, I want to bring this back. I want to think about that in terms of public policy in just a second. I'm, I'm, I'm going to raise one more sort of objection, right, <laughs> to the idea of this for you guys to, to sort of talk about. Um, so a slightly weaker version of the argument, a slightly more respectable sounding one, right? Well, and I think actually it warns of real danger, is to say, okay, but wait a minute. When, just to take one example, right, like 80, you know, a historically high percentage of, uh, of African Americans vote for Barack Obama for president. Isn't that just in group signaling it's 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 this party has just promised to give stuff to this group right and it's transactional and the more politics is based on that the you know the, the you know that way lies kind of ruin and destruction and again there's there's a more extreme version of that right you go to like you go to a place like zimbabwe under uh, under mugabe right and the idea of we are that we are now the black majority the white minority has oppressed us for a long time we will now we we majority rules now um, and so we're just going to sort of take whatever we want for our group, you know, forget the other group, right? So they're, they're basically, basically the argument is that kind of, you know, uh, propensity among groups to vote for one candidate or another is on a slippery slope down to Zimbabwe, to, to, to put it a little bit bluntly, right? So how do we think about that and sort of limitations or ch- limitations we should consider when it comes to the way we look at identity politics? I only have two quick thoughts. 
first, I don't presume to know what was in every African-American's head when they voted for Barack Obama. There could be a variety of reasons why they did that. I know I'm of Irish descent, and when John F. Kennedy ran, my grandmother and grandfather and everybody in my Irish Catholic family voted for him, and there's a, oh, one of us has finally made it. You know, Who knows if that's the motivation or not? Uh, I do know that treating – I think it's unwise to – make assumptions about groups voting patterns as a whole. I mean, 12% of African-Americans voted for the Republican candidate in the most recent election. So Mm -hmm. there, there's certainly diversity of thought there. So I hesitate to speculate. Um, and I'm not very worried about the danger of becoming, um, Mugabe in Zimbabwe for, for quite some time. Um, we're a long way away from that. If we do, it'll be perhaps for different reasons. Exactly. <laughs> so I think that that fear is is overwrought. Um, I just don't see it very likely uh, anytime soon. So that's that, those are my two quick and brief thoughts. Yeah. Well, I mean, the term balkanization has entered into the lexicon some mm-hmm. some decades ago, precisely because of this this issue of sort of how far will identity politics and and sort of group based politics yeah. take you in terms of fracturing you know uh, the the commonwealth right mm-hmm. um, so that's that's out there right yeah how close we are to that I think it's it's you know a matter of, of debate and so on but but the potential for that I mean America is not immune of course to the things that have happened to every other country in the history of the world right. Yeah. Um, so, so, but having said that, having sort of said the potential is out there, I do think Ben's comment raises something that I hadn't thought about before in terms of identity politics, and that is how often there's an aspirational element to this. Hmm. So whether it's voting for Kennedy or voting for Obama, the aspiring for a fuller inclusion in the American experiment can be mischaracterized as identity politics. When it, when it really is a very powerful symbolic opportunity to sort of move more into, into the center of mm-hmm. American political life. So I think we ought to be careful sometimes that the things we're calling identity politics, yeah. we, we're not actually in that way um, speaking pejoratively of something that other people are seeing quite positively in, ter- in, in terms of being included in the American experiment. I, I think that's important, been, been kind of alerting us to that. Mm. Um, the other thing I would, I, would, I would very simply say is that if we're honest, we, we have to admit that all politics on some level is the expression of self-interest, mm-hmm. whether it's the individual self or the group self, yeah. right? Um, and it, the only people we really expect not to act that way in the political space is the other guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we, we feel quite comfortable acting in self-interest, sure. whatever our self is, right? Our yeah. tribe, our team. We, we, you know, this is good for us, and so we're, we're moving in this way. It must be good, period. It must be good, period. That's right. We conflate good, period, with good for us, yeah. right? And the people who ought to not make that mistake are Christians, right? Yep. So, so if in Christian identity politics mm-hmm. we are being deeply Christian, yeah. we are probably the only people who can work against that self-interest motive uh, on some deep level, Right. Otherwise, you know, whatever the identity is in question, it doing, they're doing the same thing that everybody else is doing in the public square. They're acting in some level, more or less, 
in self-interest. And there's a defined group there, whether it's racial or uh, whether it's sexual orientation or whether it's class. Mm. Uh, they're, they're acting in a, in a way that is meant to protect and preserve that group. It's a really good point about Christians, and I think I th- I think about that a lot when I think about sort of groups that identify as Christian who are active in politics. Uh, we have a whole other podcast we need to do about religious liberty, but just one mm. small point on this is I do sometimes worry that even if religious liberty is a good thing, that if it looks too much like we are just sort of fighting for the right to kind of do Christian things, mm-hmm. that that will be misconstrued, especially if it seems to be harmful to others. Well, but but and the way for that to not be misconstrued is that the Christian should be fighting for the religious liberty of, of other religious groups, right? Yeah. So if, if the only time Christians are heard to be calling for religious liberty is in defense of Christians or in promotion yeah. of Christianity, then I think there is a hypocrisy in that. Yeah. Then, I, then I think that is that is identity politics of a Christian variety, nominally of a Christian variety. But if we're not those people who say, you know, look out for the interests of others right. as much as you do your, your own, right? If we're not those folks who are dying to self in order to serve others, then in a very fundamental way, we're actually betraying Christian ethics in the mm-hmm. public square. Uh, and we are, we are, if we're those Christians, you open the show by talking about hearing among Christians the, the tossing around of identity politics, where if we're those kind of Christians, we're as guilty of the same kinds of yeah. identity politics that we're disparaging in others. We're just doing it in the name of Christ, which yeah. in my mind makes it twice as bad. Yep. Well, and if I think about our own um, denomination, the Southern Baptist Convention and the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, who are sort of tasked with the work of defending religious liberty— I think if I were to take an honest accounting of their their work, you tell me, my understanding is they in fact do do that. Yes, that's right. But the highest profile stuff that makes the news is the baker in Colorado or the whatever, like any number of other things like that. And it almost strikes me that if we're strategic about kind of what we do in the world, we will go out of our way to disproportionately call attention to our defense of the religious liberties of groups that aren't our own. Yeah. I mean, it, just to put it in real concrete terms, if, if we're not supportive of legislation or if we're not marching and protesting against the the, the burning of um, Jewish synagogues mm. or or the, the vandalism of Muslim mosques. Or defending uh, the Ground Zero mosque, Or defending the Ground Zero mosque. Yeah. Uh, we have real reason to really examine whether or not uh, yeah. we are actually loving neighbor yeah. uh, and looking out for the interests of neighbor. Um, because we're not those among the world's religions who could ever be comfortable with coercion mm. toward Christ. That's not the gospel, right? Right. Yep. Um, and so we, we, I think there, that's a place where again we need to be careful that we are in a fulsome way. Uh, if we're embodying identity politics, it's the identity mm. of Christ uh, in yeah. a fulsome way. Ben, I saw a little skepticism on your face during that last exchange. <laughs> I my only point is I am not sure that the attention paid to the religious liberty um, cake case that just got decided was the result of Christians being super loud about it. I think that I agree. Particulars of that case were just so such no, a good no, no. encapsulation of the the tension points that that's why it, it went everywhere. I, I'm actually I'm actually saying if you leave it to the press to simply cover what they're going to cover, that is actually what's going to show up. I'm not even going to put that on the air. I'll see. Hmm. I'm going to say if you're being strategic, 
you're going to be dogging the press about, wait a minute, are you covering this thing that we did, hmm. right, in defense of this non-Christian group? Um, and in terms of how we think about the public face we present to the world. Yeah, and I think the, the trap I'm about to fall into is think of the, the Christian advocacy groups that are doing this work and then be like, well, you know, the Alliance Defending Freedom Coalition, that group I know has worked for Muslim issues. But then it's the question becomes is, well, wait a minute, that doesn't, these are professional advocacy groups. What I'm really more interested in is, is what does this look like in within your local church? And that's kind of a more interesting question for me personally. And I don't know how to quite answer that yet. Other than I sure hope if the nation of Islam mosque a block away from my house is getting mm. cracked down on by the police that I'm willing to stand with them and say, no, they should be free to worship yeah. as they see fit. Um, that, that's the only kind of application that comes to my mind. That's right. Well, so again, we'll come back to this when we talk religious liberty generally, but I thought that was an important aspect. Mm -hmm. of it. It's probably the most visible way in which Christians can be tempted to our own type of identity politics in this current context. There, there are probably, actually, maybe there are others, but like that's the one where I think it's like as Christians we're thinking about that. Let's, let's zoom out to that kind of issue I brought up at the beginning. I talked about affirmative action. Right, as kind of a, a so-called a, a remedy, right? And we've been talking about this idea of remedying past injustices done to groups. This sort of theology of identity that we're building together on this podcast right now, how should it apply to an issue like affirmative action? Well, biblically speaking, I think the, the sort of um, teaching that comes to mind where affirmative action is concerned is repentance, hmm. right? Yep. So there you're having in that policy, at least tacitly, and often in terms of how we talk about it publicly, explicitly, yeah. the acknowledgement of systemic injustice, you know, sort of systemic discrimination against African Americans uh, in employment, in housing, in education, in, in pretty much every sphere of life. Uh, later you get other groups added to that, uh, you get women, for example, mm -hmm. uh, benefit from affirmative action. And the whole sort of drive of the policy, which nobody really disputes that I'm aware of anymore, is, is to correct for those historical um, grievances and injustices. Um, you, you get a lot of debate then about mm -hmm. to what extent should racial identity factor into that. Well, yeah. in my mind, arguably, it should because that's, the, that's what you're trying to correct for, right? And it was the identity that was constructed as the basis for the discrimination. That's exactly right. That's exactly yeah. right. So, so I don't know how else you fix it unless you include that factor. Now, what's interesting from the at least the social psychological research is because you didn't get into questions about if, if politics are the possible and all that good stuff, and you know mm -hmm. who will support what and why, and and this is where the social science research is really helpful because it it tells us pretty clearly that where the affirmative action procedure is clearly understood by all and where race is one category among others, mm -hmm. right? Um, and, and it isn't seen to be, perceived to be a sort of a prejudice in a, in a different direction. Yeah. Then support goes through the roof. Sure. Right? Um, where race is the only factor, you start to see diminishing support for affirmative action. Yeah. Or where the procedure isn't clear, isn't transparent to people, um, then you see, you see sort of support go down. Yeah. Um, but that's a long-standing body of literature, 40 years or so uh, in the making, that, that seems to be pretty clear, that you got a good procedure that's transparent, 
you're correcting for racial injustice. That's one of the categories that's included there. People aren't walking away thinking this is identity politics. People are normally walking away thinking, oh, that's the right thing to do given our history. And that's where we want to be landing in our politics, I think, with people concluding generally across party lines or whatever. That's the right thing to do given our particular history. And I'll just add one thing to that, which is to say if I put myself in the shoes of the, say, you know, white male, not necessarily part of any of these groups, right, that might might receive some consideration for, for under these policies, the sort of initial thinking might be, well, under a purely, quote-unquote, merit-based system, I'd be more competitive than I am. And I think what I'm hearing you say is the idea of a purely merit-based neutral system is a fiction. It and is. that it's it is an imper- like it is always going to be imperfect. It's a question of how we massage the imperfections to try to do justice as best we can. Yeah, we, we love the idea of America as a meritocracy, um, and and we certainly don't want to rule that out, and we certainly don't want to sort of argue yeah. for. I I wouldn't think want to argue for a different value there, uh, other than something uh, generally merit meritocratic. Uh, but if we again don't acknowledge precisely the ways in which the merits of others have been diminished or excluded Mm. um, systematically along the lines of race or gender or class or whatever the case may be, then it is a fiction. It's it's an almost complete fiction. Uh, And we're not not being our best selves. We're not living according to our best principles as a country. So I want to go back just briefly as we talk through this on what you said about repentance, because I do think sometimes that gets lost and it can be difficult. But... um, there's a famous speech that launched affirmative action it was given by President Lyndon Johnson uh, at the commencement of, I just re- I just realized this as I Googled it, it was a commencement address he gave at Howard University mm-hmm. um, called To Fulfill These Rights. Um, but the famous quote is sort of anyone who's ever studied affirmative action knows because he kind of encapsulates that sort of spirit that I think you're describing. I'm just going to read it. Um, he says, you do not take a person who for years has been hobbled by chains and liberate him Bring him up to the starting line of a race and then say, you are free to complete, compete with all the others and still justly believe that you have been completely fair. Um, and I think that, I mean, Johnson's kind of extraordinary in a number of things he did in this era, um, but sort of that spirit of, actually, I'm, I'm acknowledging, mm-hmm. right, that this group was hobbled by chains and that if, even if I didn't do the hobbling, I benefit from it. Mm-hmm. If I if I get to start the race way ahead of the other guy, mm-hmm. um, and I do think that to me, if you think about the Christian imperative toward justice, is why some sense of recognizing and understanding identity and history of identity should be a part of our discourse about how we view public policy. Otherwise, we are actually the very people that Johnson is pushing against in that quote, mm. and I do feel like I, I have seen an uptick. In, mm. in that notion that at some at some imagined point past, everybody came to the starting line right. and everybody's equal and now we should just be sort of dealing with merits. Um, and so there is wrapped up in some quarters of going back to your notion of colorblindness mm. and wrapped up in some comments about identity politics. Also, this, this ideological notion that, no, this is all sort of common starting line um, yeah. relative same advantages or disadvantages. Everybody's kind of equal and whatever is resulting has nothing to do with history or policy or government or any of those things. Um, and so let's just get on with it. And I just think that's a that's an ahistorical 
um, and, and it points very immoral uh, approach to these sets of issues that, that I think Christians ought to be interrogating. Well, and actually, it brings up something. There's, there's actually a corollary to that that I think is super important. Mm. It then means that when you look at all the data about inequality, right? You say, for example, that, um, uh, you know, that uh, Latino Americans sort of achieve systemically below kind of their sort of non-white, his, uh, uh, white non-Hispanic peers mm-hmm. um, in school mm-hmm. um, and in jobs or whatever else. That sort of, I think, median African-American wealth is approaching zero That's right. from negative, That's right. right? Where median That's right. where median white wealth is obviously very, very positive sum. That's right. I think once you decide, once you buy into that fiction of the starting line was equal, mm-hmm. you have no choice but to look at all that data and conclude it's because they deserve it. That's right. That's right. And if you look at the data, it's actually hard to look at the data and go, oh, yeah, it must be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they deserve it. But it's the inexorable conclusion of sort of buying into that fictional starting line, I think. Yeah. And at that point, you, you're actually not doing social science. You, you're doing ideology, right? You, you, you're not you're not being true with the facts and true with the data uh, as much as you're defending, you know, a sort of view of the world and of life um, that isn't in keeping with the data. Yeah. Yeah. So let's come back around to Ben's question that he posed, his challenge to us. And Ben, you should answer this challenge too, as, as best we can. For the Christian, acting in a local church or acting in the broader public sphere, how should we guard our hearts, guard our lives um, in such a way as to kind of um, recognize the importance of identity and sort of put it in the its right proportion and place um, in what we do? That's a good question. Um, I'm I'm thinking through it as as I'm speaking. I don't have a great answer other than you know I think one value that I keep coming back to is empathy and and trying to understand mm-hmm. how people's experiences in life in their cultural identity racial identity is has impacted their ability to um, pursue all the things that we want them to be able to pursue in life. Um, so. I, for me, the best answer I have for you right now is, is to listen a lot, speak slowly, um, mm-hmm. and kind of let people tell me how I can best come alongside them and love them well in a local church context. That, that's about where I'm at right now, yeah. uh, simply because I have a lot more to learn before I start dispensing advice or anything, anything of that nature. Nick, how would you answer that? Oh gosh, um, so I thought I, I thought I get to go said, last. No, you yeah, yeah, buying yeah, time, yeah, asking yeah. the questions. <laughs> I was buying time, but actually, no. I'll, I'll Ben. I'll piggyback on what you said because I actually think sort of empathy is a really wise response. Listening is a really wise response, and I don't mean that. I don't mean that for anybody in any particular group. I mean that for every last one of us, right? Um, because whatever context you're in, first of all, just recognizing, hmm there are different identity groups in the room mm-hmm. and let me make it my mission to joyfully learn more about where they're coming from, what their history is, why they feel the way that they do, uh, and so on and so forth. Right? Like, and I think the more we endeavor to do that, the more you start to understand to be to your point, how kind of history and circumstance shape people's views of things. Right? So, uh, I give, give you a micro example from my own family, right? Like my wife is Haitian, her mom is Haitian, uh, her mom is obviously also Haitian, and she just told me once that two of her brothers served in the military. 
and that that was really hard at first uh, for her parents to take. Why? Because there is a history of the American military occupying um, the nation of Haiti for decades um, at the turn of the 19th and early 20th centuries, right? And so what does it mean when your sons go and join, go and join this very military, right? Um, that is a piece of context that matters at a very micro level in terms of how I would talk about a decision like that, a decision by my son one day to go into the military, for example. Um, and it matters, right? And so that, that, that you can expand that out, but like you, you can't tell me then that these things can be adjudicated and decided free of context. And so I think, and this is, this is going to be an ongoing theme, I think one of the tough things about um, one of the tough things about differing identities is that navigating them requires work. And I think often, often the cry of the person asking for the sort of race neutral solution is the cry of someone who doesn't want to do the work. Amen. And um, Amen. as Christians, we should just be willing to do the work. Amen. Always. Well, you, you took my. Ah, well, you there we go. My, so that's what you get. That's well, what you get. <laughs> but you said it better than I would have said it. So, so I'm glad. I was, I was going to sort of exhort us to, to three things. Um, one, one is precisely what you said, Nick. I, I do think that oftentimes the people who push back against this are folks who just don't want to have to slow down and, and deal with the complexity of the world and do the work, right? Uh, and so I want to exhort that. Um, the other thing I want to exhort us to is understanding that in the construction of identities, people are actually not always doing the same project, hmm. right? So, so when I listen to, say, uh, a brother or sister in the Lord whose family is, uh, let's say, coming from a European country, mm -hmm. and they can tell their immigrant story, right? And they can say, hey, I'm, I'm, as my brother said before, I'm Irish Catholic, right? And that, that roots them and situates them in a particular way. Um, that's never been questioned or mm -hmm. never systematically sort of stripped from them. Mm -hmm. uh, and so becoming an American is, is a great ideal for them. That, that involves laying down that, mm -hmm. that, that sort of identity, making it secondary to being American, mm -hmm. right? The African-American position, for example, isn't, isn't the same. See, yeah. African-Americans are people with no return address. Mm -hmm. So this man can say, I'm Irish Catholic. Well, I can't say I'm Igbo or Hausa mm -hmm. or Mwere or I'm Kikuyu or Kukamba. Mm -hmm. I, I have no idea. So the particularity that he enjoys is actually an existential angst for me. Mm -hmm. Right. And so part of what it means to be African-American is to construct an identity yeah. over and against forces that are operating against it. Mm -hmm. So you go from African to Negro to black to African-American grasping for a return mm -hmm. identity. Now, having fought for that it, for some sense of, of health and group health and group identity, I'm now also carrying on, I'm thinking about this historically, I don't mean it, yeah, I personally, yeah, but historically, yeah. we're also carrying on a fight to also be regarded as American. Yep. Right? Yep. <laughs> in, in a way that first has to affirm who we are, as opposed to the Irish Catholic example, where, mm -hmm. where the first step can be kind of laying down that to some extent, yeah. knowing that there's also Irish-American prejudice on that stuff. But it's a different project. Right. And so yeah. sometimes we enter into these conversations and we speak to each other and, and act with each other as if we're all doing the same thing with our identities mm. and we're not. Right. Um, and slowing down enough to do the work to recognize that is really important. 
Um, That's a really good point. And then I guess the third thing I would just exhort us to in all of that with the patience and the doing the work and recognizing we're doing different projects, I just exhort us to pray for each other. Mm. Right? I just exhort us to pray for each other because, you know, you're talking about your family, your wife's Haitian and mom's Haitian and and just on the micro level, you know, two sons serving in the military and and what that means. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I don't need to come along and say, well, they should just be proud to be in the American Armed Forces. Right. Well, wait a minute. I mean, you know, yeah, maybe, but there's also other stuff you're working through that I just yeah. need to pray about. I don't need to fix it. I don't need to redirect it. I just need to pray the Lord would give you grace and enable you to to hold fast to Christ in deeper ways uh, and apply the, the truths of the Scripture as you work through those things. And so, yeah, so I just think we need patient prayer for each other. And there's a nuance to thinking that's required to be able to say, I'm proud of my service in the military. Mm-hmm. Nothing, your decision, your struggling with it doesn't denigrate mm-hmm. uh, that. I don't see it as denigrating that. That's right. As opposed to it's either or. No, I, amen. Important. Amen. Amen. Yeah, yeah. Well, why don't we do that? Why don't we go ahead and pray for ourselves and for others? Can we ask Ben? This is Ben's first time on the show. Can we ask uh, Ben to pray for Initiation him? ritual, That's exactly right? right. Let's do it. Yeah, I'd love to. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to sit down and think well about issues that are so often divisive. Um, I, I ask that you continue to create greater unity in your church and that Christians may be able to exemplify the kind of love that is world-changing, um, that is attractive, and that people can see how your work in us through your Holy Spirit creates a new community that transcends all boundaries and makes us one in Christ um, and glorifies your name through a variety of different people from a variety of different places, speaking a variety of different languages and how beautiful that is. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. 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 Amen.